0: All Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Dealmaker Show. So uh, today, again, we have a founder, a founder that is going to teach us how to go from one industry to another one without really knowing much about it, and then also how to build, scale, finance, uh, taking companies public, you name it. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Dan Kane. Welcome to the show today. Thank you, Alejandro. It's a pleasure to be here. So originally from south of Florida. So how was uh, life growing up there? Life in South Florida
1: is not what people expect. I think people think of South Florida as retirees, vacation, you know, a a mouse and and, uh, theme parks. Um, South Florida has everything you would imagine uh, it it should from an academic perspective. I had a delightful childhood. You know, I had parents who were uh, very successful uh, business people. My father was a physician. My mother was a, a teacher. Um. So it's it's an idealistic childhood. The weather is perfect, but everything beyond that is is what you would expect uh, in a wonderful, normal upbringing environment.
0: Well, the weather is definitely perfect, and I'm sure that you know people in in New York City, you know, miss that type of weather, especially in the winter. So, um, <laughs> so good, good stuff.
1: Depends what good. time we're listening to this, but absolutely. I mean, there, there's always good weather in South Florida. It's it's one of the uh, not so best kept secrets. But what we need to make less secret is the fact that it's also a fantastic business environment or place to raise a family.
0: Very cool. Very cool. So why did you decide to come to New York City and and, and go to Cornell?
1: So Cornell was always the school I've wanted to go to. Um, I, I'm a legacy from Cornell. My parents met there. So I was allowed to go to any school I wanted so long as it was Cornell. Um, and after many trips up there from my childhood, it, it's the school I, I very much wanted to go. Now, it's 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 the The right school if you're very interested in uh, applied economics, it's it's a, it's good for a lot of things. But what I found is their undergraduate business program uh, was incredibly practical. It was incredibly pragmatic. Uh, they weren't teaching you the the theory or just the theory of of economics or marketing. They were teaching you how to actually apply it. Uh, and for me, that was important because I was busy starting a company as I was you know
0: building my undergraduate degree. So where did you get the love for, for, let's say, resolving problems? Because I think that, you know, economics, you know, to a certain degree has to do with that, but you got very much early in, in the process of, of building, you know, your own business, you know, not the type of stuff that you would see from perhaps your, your classmates that were dreaming with a day where they would work for a consulting firm, a, a big bank, or let's say, you know, maybe going to law school. So, so why, where did you develop this? So
1: my, my passion for problem solving was there since I was young. I mean, I I had my first entrepreneurial experiences when I was starting a lemonade stand. Uh, I think like a lot of other kids, you know, there, there's not a lot you can do as a, as a, a five, six, seven year old, uh, but certainly you can, you can mix lemonade, add sugar uh, and sell it on the corner on a hot day, which in Florida we had an awful lot of. Um, but where I think I was a little bit different than my peers were, I wanted to understand the cost of... Uh, the goods sold, right? I wanted to understand uh, the the supply side of Crystal Light. Um, And when you're five, the answer to those questions are your parents are going to buy it for you and you don't have cogs. Uh, So I found it really profitable to make lemonade and sell it. As a matter of fact, I found the whole add water and ice thing really a pain in the ass. And so I stopped doing that and just sold the packets of Crystal Light which to me had great markup because I wasn't paying for the inventory to begin with. Uh, so I guess you could say that I always had that entrepreneurial bug. Um, the problem-solving aspect of your question is one that I, I think I think a lot of people, as they look around, they see inefficiencies. And what makes an entrepreneur different is the drive to change it. It, it either bothers them more uh, and they feel compelled to do something about it, or they, they have more of, a, of a, an activity action threshold where, it, it just forces them to want to make a difference um, and make a change. And, and it can sometimes be as simple as seeing inefficiencies around you. Um, like when I was an undergrad at, at Cornell, the internet wasn't being used uh, in the classroom because the internet in 1997 was just being born. And so this wasn't anything they were doing wrong, but I just saw this opportunity to take this new, this new power uh, and apply it to the only thing that I knew as a student, which was being in class. Uh, and the entire concept of Blackboard grew out of that need to act, that 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 drive that said, hey, if I look around, there are things that we should be doing, whether it's with technology or with communication. And I, I have the know-how to be able to make that happen. And somewhere in there, there's probably a business model. And the business models evolve um, and, and the thinking around how to make money from those ideas is constantly changing. And I was very fortunate uh while i was helping create blackboard that the the uh, prominent business model when i started was one of bill and collect and i was very fortunate because the the model shifted in the few years after blackboard founded away from the traditional hey you should make money by selling something to you should give it away to as many people as possible and make money on eyeballs um, which as we know today is, is not a sustainable business model, you know, unless you're something like a Facebook or a Google or a Twitter. Um, but very few of us can become that. So I was fortunate that the prevailing model at the time was the traditional business model, which is you have to find ways of selling something, taking money, collecting the money, offering a service, retaining your customer. Uh, and, and those have been the dominant business models I've had uh, for all my businesses going forward.
0: And and Blackboard actually started as Course Info. So uh, so who started the business? What were like some of the you know founding team members?
1: So it was my housemates. Of course, it's your housemates because who else on earth is going to work for free. Uh, and nobody, <laughs> I mean, when you're in college, first of all, only your housemates are ones that are crazy enough to follow your harebrained ideas right. for starting a business. Uh, and we, we were literally doing it because we thought, Hey, if we do this and it's moderately successful, we could upgrade from kegs of beast to maybe like rolling rock or yeah. someday, you know, maybe if we're really successful, Sam Adams. And that was the gauge of success. And, and we were measuring success based on literally the number of courses at the university that were paying us to help build their websites. And what we were ill-prepared for was just the massive demand that came out of not just Cornell University, but as other universities saw what we were doing, other places. And the software concept grew out of necessity. We couldn't keep up with demand. Uh, once we got to a few dozen courses, we started to write tools to automate our own internal work to help manage these course websites. And pretty soon the tools got pretty good. Uh, and we could not only manage more and more, we could start to turn the tools over to the end users so that they could update their own documents, post their own assignments, you know, update their own gradebook. And that became the genesis of Blackboard.
0: And obviously when you can't keep up with the demand is what people call in our space then. Uh, Dan- Product market fit. So, was it that was that like right right away, or or did you guys have to make like some tweaks on the MVP, you know, the minimum viable product that you guys went to market with, or or walk us through that through that process?
1: So it was a, it was a constant evolution. It never, I would say, even today, it's not not reached uh, you know a a maximally viable product, but it's it's reached a minimum. Um, the the needs of the market were ever evolving as the technology was moving at a pace that allowed for us to do more and more and more faster than users were conceptually able to adopt it. Um, The beautiful thing about the education technology market is the model of education had remained static for hundreds of years, where it was a teacher providing content, they were either standing in front of you or, or somehow you were getting access to that. You were reading as a student, you were doing assignments as a student, and you had this you know dialogue, but it was teacher-students, teacher-student. And the other models, which were more um, experiential, hadn't really been... Uh, Massively adopted, they were certainly being used in in pockets of academia. But the the models that we have today, um, with its tremendous variety of instructor led or teacher led and student student led and project based, uh, weren't as prominent back in in the late nineties. And so the the product reached an MVP fairly quickly. But the definition of an MVP, the the bar kept getting raised. And so what we found is um, what worked in one semester was suddenly woefully behind for the next as the demand increased and demand increased, and there was an absolute wonderful arms race going on between hundreds of companies, which then whittled down to dozens of companies, which whittled down to a handful of companies, and and we see that pattern over and over and over again as new industries emerge, and so it was not unique uh, to us at Blackboard. We saw the same thing at Modernizing Medicine. Uh, in the healthcare space, where we're, we're in a consolidation phase now. Uh, but when we were starting Blackboard, we did get to a, an MVP for one class pretty quickly. Uh, but then we found when we got to 10 classes, the MVP changed, 100 classes, it changed, different universities, it changed. And that's what kept it exciting, was the, the ever need uh, of of investment to be able to grow your technology, grow the service, grow the platform to meet the needs of a constantly evolving, changing marketplace.
0: Got it. So the company, as as we discussed, it was started as Course Info uh, in in ninety around ninety seven, but in ninety eight, uh, Blackboard really became you know itself with a merger, uh, a merger that you guys did with with a company from K, KPMG. So why why did why did you guys do this? So
1: this is an area where, you know, I, I, the listeners, I hope, can, can take a lesson here. Um, I, I, was, I was a lot of things, and I wouldn't say that I was the most humble person, but I at least was self-aware enough to know that I knew nothing about actually going out, raising capital, uh, you know, funding a company, recruiting talent you know, I was at that point, a junior in college, hadn't even graduated with, you know, a, a, a BABS. So, uh, I was self-aware enough to know that there are people in that world who, who knew more about running a business than I did. And while I may be in a, a decent technologist and I might be an innovator and see things that other people hadn't seen act on them more quickly, I needed to surround myself with people that actually knew business. And, um, The KPMG aspect were were people who were employed. They're working in Washington, D.C. in KPMG's higher ed consulting division. And they knew more about the industry than I do. They knew more about business than I do. And so the thinking and rationale behind the merger was if we combined forces, you know, we have tech, we have customers, we have innovation. They had industry knowledge. They were, you know, expert consultants on higher education uh, and, and they had brand, they had awareness, they had maturity, which is a, a good thing to have, that we would be taken a lot more seriously. I mean, of course, Invo had dabbled with the idea of raising capital. And once we got beyond, you know, friends and family, um, we were, you know, 1997, Started with you know the, the dot coms. I, I think the Globe had gone public just then, if I recall back in time. So the dot com craze was just beginning, but it wasn't at the stage at which people were writing checks for million dollars for nineteen year olds yet. Now it would become that, but it didn't. It wasn't that when we started. And even if it was that, the right thing to do was to combine forces with a group of people that really knew more about running a business than I did. Um, and so that combination created the the core of Blackboard. I mean, that's that's literally the epicenter. We brought these two things together, formed Blackboard Inc., and suddenly the pieces were there. You know, expertise, experience, technology, innovation, customer roster. So it was the right thing to get started from that point. And then we started to go out and raise capital from there.
0: So tell us about the um, you know the the, the capital raise um, because. I mean, once the transaction was done, you know, you guys finally came out with, with Blackboard. I mean, were there like certain things that you knew you needed to, to, to get right before you would go out to market and raise money or you guys just went at it and, and just tried to get the money right away?
1: Uh, I, as much as I would love to tell you that we were, were very thoughtful about, you know, the process and where we needed to be as a company, uh, this was a land grab. And the best thing to do in a land grab is to grab land, uh, get out there, raise capital, um, and I, I would say in hindsight, we were, we were ridiculously dilutive, uh, to ourselves as a founding team. But the, the, you know, the trade-off was if you don't raise enough capital, you can't move fast enough that other, other people are going to be able to grab land faster than you. And so, uh, I think in hindsight, it was the right trade-off. We, we raised an awful lot of capital at, you know, various valuation ranges, always sort of escalating up and up and up, uh, but it became, you know, a very dilutive experience. And it's one of the lessons that is, is hard to learn is the trade-off between trying to maintain control and equity and grow slower versus taking on dilution, taking on investment and being able to grow a lot faster. The, the things I've learned include, you know, money lets you overcome a lot more obstacles than, than not having money. Um, and time to market is essential, and you need to make hay when the sun is shining, and when, you know, when universities hadn't yet selected e-learning platforms, uh, and there were, there was a massive competition on to get, you know, universities to adopt, and switching costs are high once it's in, you you need the capital to, to get out there. You need to be able to fundraise, hire a sales team, hire marketing, build brand, um, and drive a company forward, and so, you know, When I look back over those years at Blackboard, I mean, we took on an awful lot of dilution, but we built a billion dollar company in the process. And so, you know, would you rather have a small percentage of a much bigger company or a big percentage of a smaller company? And I hate to make the trade-off that simple, but it really was that simple.
0: So then for the founders that are listening, how do you think they should be thinking about dilution then?
1: So I would say it's, it's, it's facts and circumstances, right? If you're in an industry where, agility and time to market are of the essence, then you should take on the risk of more dilution for more maneuverability and dry powder, right? If you're in a market where you have the luxury of time, then I would say, you know, consider taking on dilution only to the extent that it's going to move your needle to a different level of either profitability or growth. And and you have the luxury in some positions of being able to do that. If it's a lifestyle business, if it's one that you're, you know, comfortable growing at a slower rate, then taking on you know the dilution taking on an investor may not be the right choice for you. Uh, if you are in a market where you know time is of the essence, you have a, a massively evolving competitive landscape, and your competitors are out there raising capital, then you darn sure want to make sure that you're you're in there as well, and you're raising capital, and you're using the capital more effectively than your competitors are.
0: And I understand that you're, uh, to follow up on this, you're more of the school of thought that an ear- at an early stage, it makes more sense to raise money from your customers. So, so can you walk us through this?
1: So uh, happy to. The, the, the rationale wasn't so much out of it's a good idea to raise money from customers, though, though it is, and I'll get to that in a second. It was in 2009, when we were raising money for modernizing medicine, we were in the midst of the worst economic climate in U.S. history. Um, so very few people were interested in investing in early stage pre-revenue startups um, or companies that were, you know, hemorrhaging cash and, you know, the, the the markets had crashed, right? Certainly the housing bubble had burst and even venture was more making double, you know, doubling down on their, their initial investments rather than looking at net new opportunities. And so... Um, there, there's a lot of of thinking about what's the right time to start a company. I actually really appreciate the ability to start companies when the market is bad, because it means fewer people are starting companies at the same time. Right when everyone is rushing into an industry, uh, it's harder to differentiate. Um, I, I I might have been one of the only companies in 2009 trying to tackle you know t- tackle healthcare IT. Uh, which takes millions and millions of dollars just to get your your MVP to market. And so um, there there was a little bit of insanity in our thinking. And and it was evident when we went to raise capital. Uh, even with a billion-dollar exit of Blackboard under my belt, uh, I got an awful lot of yeses to the meeting, and I got an awful lot of we'll call you backs, or we'll wait and see, or we're going to see how the market goes when it came time to write a check. Yeah. And after a few dozen of those, you know, the writing was on the wall, that, that traditional angels and venture capitalists we're just not going to be interested in a, 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 a startup, even if it had the right team and market and everything else about it was right. They just didn't have the appetite for it. Um, but it was interesting in the process of of building those those relationships with those investors, we had been um, building our software and we had accumulated a few dozen beta accounts. We weren't charging for the software yet, but of course we're not out there fundraising on an idea, we're fundraising on that we're gonna take the prototype and turn it into an actual product and we're gonna charge for it and build a real business. And when we had asked our beta customers who had no relationship with prior uh, to to modernizing medicine, if they would be references when, when the VCs wanted to talk to an actual user, they said something that surprised me. They said they would be delighted to be references, that the software was unlike anything they had seen before. Uh, and then they would say, hey, could I invest? And it, it was it was enlightening because I never really thought of our end users as a source of, of angel or early stage capital. Um, but you have to remember my market is healthcare professionals and they do pretty well for themselves. So when I originally thought that, okay, maybe they'll write checks for you know, $10,000, $20,000 each, all of a sudden they're saying, well, I'd like to put in $100,000, $200,000, half a million dollars. Um, and by the way, your software is great. You should charge me for it, which will drive revenue. And I'm going to start letting all of my you know peers know that there's this amazing software uh, out there and they should be taking a look at it. And so we created a whole uh, army of, of, you know, investors that were users of the product that now had a perfectly aligned interest to make sure that we were successful um, and used their their position in the marketplace to be able to, to you know, let people know. Um, and so it worked. It worked beautifully. I don't know if that works in every industry, but if your users yeah. are willing to not only say, charge me for the software, but can I invest in the company? I think you're onto something.
0: Very cool. Very cool. And we're going to go into into your next venture, your current one right now, modernizing medicine in just uh, a little bit. But going back to, um, to Blackboard, what was the, um, can you walk us through what, because you, you did raise um, quite a bit of money before the IPO and then also uh, during and after IPO. But but I'd like to kind of like get a better understanding for myself and then also for the listeners. What was that process of raising the capital, like from financing milestone to financing milestone with, with Blackboard?
1: So Blackboard was, uh, as I said, a a lot of rounds of financing, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F. I can't think we just kept going until we hit nine. (laughs) I'm I'm actually not being flipped. We we kept on taking rounds and rounds of capital. Um, it was, it was a never ending, um, merry-go-round of, of pitching the company, raising capital, spending the capital. And while you're spending the capital, preparing the next round of financing. And it was, it was one where we did it in stages. Um, and I would love to, again, in hindsight, it actually looked like it worked pretty well. And that the, this was not, you know, t- today when I look at an Uber as an example, fantastic company hemorrhaging money, billions of dollars um, with no sign of, of, of relief. At Blackboard, when we raised money, each time we would elevate the growth rate of the company, we would achieve a new level of, of stability um, and get to a place that was close to break even. So the run rate of the business would go from, you know, 6 million to 12 million to 25 million. And each time we'd raise capital, we'd be able to to ratchet up uh, the size and scale of the company. But it wasn't built in a way that if the next round didn't appear, the company would be in jeopardy. So we were we were never forced to take on more capital because that's a position you never want to put your company in unless you really know what you're doing. And I'm, I'm not one of those people. But what you can do is is ratchet up the run rate of the business, ratchet up the spend and the revenue and get to a new plateau of sustainability. And, and that's that was the focus of Blackboard as we kept raising capital. And remember, I, I was not the CEO of Blackboard. Uh, I was the founder, co-founder. We, we talked about when we merged with the company out of KPMG, there became three co-founders of Blackboard. Um, and at various points, none of us were CEO. At some points, one of us were CEO. And I used the opportunity to learn. I used the opportunity to, you know, we, we brought in at various points, three different CEOs of Blackboard. And I, I like to think that I learned by far more by watching them and experiencing with them, sitting with them in the boardroom, raising capital than I could have ever done it on my own because they had been successful in their previous careers. And they taught me how to raise capital. They taught me how to take a company public. They taught me how to grow internationally. Um, They taught me about culture and they taught me about the importance of, of, you know, uh, transparency in the companies and just things that aren't taught in school. They used to not be taught in school that you had to really experience firsthand. So, I, I joke with my friends that while I never officially got an MBA, I have the most expensive MBA in history. It costs a several hundred million dollars.
0: Very cool. And there is a, there's this book from Jim Collins, Good to Great, where they actually you know perform some uh, research and they see you know like the performance on companies that have uh, founding CEOs versus companies that recruit CEOs. So did you guys like see any type of difference and perhaps looking back, you know, like how how that impact, impacted the business?
1: Yeah, I would say that that the, the founders didn't leave the company. And I, I think that is important because that founding spirit is a large part of the innovation spirit that, that need to change, that need to drive something forward or transform an industry. And I, I don't like to think in terms of absolutes. Like there are ways and we're evidence of it, that you can be a founder of a company, uh, but bring in a CEO and, and enjoy the ride. Um, which is exactly what I did at Blackboard. I mean, it it was, it was an amazing adventure. I learned a lot. I learned enough that when I was ready to do it myself with modernizing medicine, I got to make entirely new mistakes, but i had already learned a lot of the mistakes not to make in the first rodeo. And so I think that there's, there's definitely something uh, to be said about that. Now, I, I disagree when people say like founders are good for one thing, you know, CEOs are, are a different position. The two are not mutually exclusive. I definitely think there's a different skill set between startup and scale-up. And some entrepreneurs can transcend those boundaries, others get stuck. Um, and it's very painful to watch them try to apply a, a startup mentality to a scale-up organization. Um, but they're they're not mutually exclusive. You you can be a founder and you can be good at startup and scale-up. You can be a founder and good at startup. Obviously, you have to be a good a, a startup to do it. Otherwise, you didn't get anywhere. But you need to be mindful and more self-aware. Are, are you the right person to help scale that
0: company? Of course. And and what was the process of taking Blackboard Public? What was that like?
1: So the, the process of the roadshow, uh, it was one where every entrepreneur sort of dreams of it. I know I, I certainly had these these beautiful delusions of what it would be like, and the private jets, and the meetings, and the, the opening day on the Nasdaq, um, and it was some of that. It was it was you know a private jet, though. On the second day, you're realizing it's Groundhog's Day, and you're doing the same thing with different people over and over and over. So it it gets a little anticlimactic, but it's still an adventure. It's still fun. Uh, the day you actually go public and trade is unlike anything. I mean, there aren't, there aren't words I can use to describe the excitement. Um, but I would say also that at the end of the day, it was it was anticlimactic. I mean, it was a beautiful experience. I would do it all over again. Uh, and then I got home, and I'm like, tomorrow is another day. Tomorrow we've got to work at it. And now we're publicly traded, and the whole world can see how we're valued. And so it it was. Uh, a, a, a anticlimactic experience at the end of the day, during the experience, it was magnificent. Uh, and you realize only after you've done it that it's, it's a financial exit for some people, but not for you. That for you, it's just another chapter. It's just another stage in the journey. Um, being publicly traded gives you tremendous benefits for public currency to go out and do M&A. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, it's a lot of visibility and there's an awful lot of quarterly accountability uh, we went public before Sarbanes-Oxley. Obviously, it's a different world now. Um, I think that the world has changed, and it's harder to be a public company than ever before. I think that private equity has billions and billions of dollars uh, in their war chest and are dying to deploy that into great companies. So the need to go public is different um, today than it was when Blackboard went public. There, there, was, there was no way at the time we wanted to raise about $130 million Uh, there was no easy way to do that as a privately held company back then, as a a tech company that was growing fast but losing money. Like That's just not a profile back then that private equity was very interested in. So I I would say that today entrepreneurs have it um, different in that there's more opportunities. You you can go public if you choose to. You can stay private much longer. You've got uh, a world of private equity, some that value uh, growth, some that value EBITDA, Uh, Some that are looking for the rule of 40 or or now the rule of 50 and trying to figure out the right balance between growth and EBITDA. But there are options out there for just about every business uh, that's looking to raise capital.
0: So Blackboard ended up being acquired uh, actually by a private equity firm since uh, you were talking about private equity firms uh, just now. So, So how was that process like?
1: So uh, a company called Providence Equity, a large, uh, very well-respected private equity fund, uh, acquired Blackboard. And uh, I mean, the actual process of being taken private, also anticlimactic, you expect sort of, I don't know what I expected, but it wasn't, I mean, nothing changed, right? Suddenly you're delisted and you're owned by a, a private equity fund and they own the equity of the company. Um, what, what did change was, you know, th- their thesis in what to do uh, didn't mirror my own personal opportunities for, for what I thought Blackboard uh, could become. And their thesis was around, you know, continuing to innovate and grow the company, but they were more interested in looking at the profitability profile. So the levers were, were set in a different configuration. Um, and to me, that was sort of the writing on the wall that the days of, of large R&D budgets and innovation and transformation were going to be slowed down. Um, And so I I didn't wait very long after that that process to leave Blackboard um, and come to Florida, where I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, And I thought for a very brief period of time, a brief period of time, that I was going to find something smaller. Maybe I would teach. Maybe I'd coach. Maybe I'd mentor. I didn't know. Um, And after two weeks of moping around the house, um, trying to be you know a, a great dad, great husband you know, helpful as possible. Uh, my wife and kids said, you need to go get a job. You're driving us crazy. Um, <laughs> they, they, they did stipulate. So this is the, the great true story of how I found in modernizing medicine. They stipulated that I had turned 30 and I hadn't seen a doctor, which was true, and that I needed to get a health check. I just needed a checkup and then I could go start whatever company I wanted to start. And I thought that was a very reasonable negotiation, uh, made an appointment with a primary care physician. Uh, who and I think I mentioned earlier in the podcast, my father's a physician. So this primary care physician uh, knew my father and wanted to make sure they were thorough. Uh, I met the the doctor. You know, they they asked what I needed uh, done. I just said I need to check a box. So if we can make this fast, I want to go start a company. Uh, after sort of a quick dialogue and a, and a brief check, they said, "Well, you know, you, you seem fine, healthy. You probably could you know exercise more, lose a little weight, uh, but you're extremely tan, uh, and we want you to visit a dermatologist." And I, I, was, I was not going to question too much on it because, frankly, I was, I was unemployed, uh, so I was spending a lot of time outside, and I wasn't using sunscreen, and I did get rather tan. Uh, and so it didn't seem unreasonable, but I did notice in the process of going to that, that physician uh, that there was really no electronic anything. Like my intake forms were bad photocopies on skewed paper um, and that the entire experience from the doctor to the medical assistant to the front desk was analog. It was a paper chart. And when I went to the dermatologist they referred me to, um, it was the same thing. It was paper, more paper, more paper. All of the things I had filled out earlier that morning, I had to refill out. And as as a tech entrepreneur, that was frustrating. Uh, and I, I sort of used the opportunity to strike up a conversation with the staff at the dermatologist's office and find out why they hadn't adopted any sort of electronic anything. Uh, and they were all complaining that the software out there uh, was either terrible to use um, and would slow them down or it was cost prohibitive or they had to install a whole bunch of things on, on servers and they were not IT people. And, you know, to me, that smelled like an opportunity uh, met the physician, struck up a conversation with him. Uh, so here I am in a paper gown talking to a doctor about, you know, why isn't he using technology and is there an opportunity? Uh, he starts flipping back in my charts, really like, like, who the heck is this, this kid? <laughs> and asked me about business. He didn't know what Blackboard was, but we hit it off. And a long story short, he became my co founder. Very cool, uh, and it was a chance encounter with uh, my dermatologist that led to the founding of Modernizing Medicine.
0: Very cool, and just to close the um, the chapter of Blackboard, what were the terms of the acquisition? I, be, I believe those are public and were reported.
1: Uh, yes, yeah, so it was uh, a little over one point six billion dollar cash uh, buyout for the entire equity stake of the company.
0: Very, very cool. Very cool. I mean, for the your first company, not not bad at all, Dan.
1: Well, the lemonade stand was the first. It, it didn't quite exit <laughs> at the same level, but yeah, not too shabby. Yeah. Uh, you know, a couple hundred million, of venture IPO, and an eventual exit for a billion six um, was was definitely a journey. Uh, it was delightful. It was it was the, the people along the way. Obviously, I'm still very close with my housemates. So they've all gone off and started other companies. We now have you know uh, friendly competition between us over who's going to have the you know the the, the next best. Uh, you know, IPO or exit after that. Um, and, and all of them are doing really exciting things in industries that, frankly, none of us knew anything about when we were going to college together. So it's it's exciting. And it's more proof that the experience and exposure to the industry is not necessarily the most important thing. It's that drive for innovation and change and learning the, the mechanics of how to build and scale a company, uh, which really differentiate great entrepreneurs. Of
0: course. So let's talk about modernizing medicine. So I know that choosing the right co-founder is super important. So why did you really know? Why, why did you, how, What made you to believe that, let's say, your co-founder here was the right one?
1: So choosing a co-founder is, is probably the single most important thing that a founder does. Um, and I do not understand how entrepreneurs can go at it alone. Uh it's it's so hard. It's so much of an emotional toil uh that not having anyone to share it with, I mean, the burden is just unbelievably great. And I can't speak from experience because I've never gone at it myself. At Blackboard, there were three co-founders. At ModMed, I have a co-founder, and I couldn't imagine a journey in which it was just you in a room with no one to share it with. Like it's just, you know, the highs wouldn't be as high and the lows would be unbearable. Um how i knew michael was the right one was his 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 unbelievable attention to what the industry needs he he can serve as a human proxy for an industry and you know obviously he needs to check it and validate you know with others but his intuition when it comes to healthcare is is unparalleled and it was again i'm a little bit aware of my own deficiencies and i knew that i knew nothing about healthcare I don't know about the business of healthcare. I don't know the medicine of healthcare. I didn't know the reimbursement of healthcare. Like, I just didn't know how it worked. And so um, I wasn't brazen enough to think I could do it myself. But I knew that with the right partner, with the right domain expert, um, that we could get something done. The mistake I didn't want to make was having a co founder who was a consultant, like having someone who once a week, once a month, or once a, a blank would come in and sort of give course correction. What I needed was a co pilot right? A co-founder should be sharing the responsibility and the burden and helping you run the business. Uh, and that's what I got. in and, and Michael, um, and, and he is, you know, he's an unbelievable, it's been 10 years now, uh, an unbelievable friend, uh, a co-founder, you know, he, he runs all of the, the strategy and he's obviously the chief medical officer of modernizing medicine. And even he realized the lessons that, that I had learned as we grew the company, which were while he knew dermatology, he didn't know ophthalmology or orthopedics or otolaryngology. And so we've hired other physicians to work alongside Michael who can help advise us on uh, the nuances of the specialties. And and I think that you need as an entrepreneur to be receptive to the fact that you don't need to always know everything. Being vulnerable and admitting you don't know something is not a weakness, it's a strength. You need to surround yourself with people to complement your vulnerabilities. And you needed to make sure, I mean, you're you you need to make sure you get to the right answer rather than make up an answer and look like you know what you're doing.
0: So here, you know, something interesting, you know, and and just following up here on on Michael your your co-founder, Michael Sherling. He actually studied in Yale and then also Harvard, and then he was uh, a dermatologist for for 11 years before joining, you know, this this journey with you. How the hell did you convince someone with that level of um, stability to really, you know, take the leap of faith, leave everything behind and, and join you in something like this, Done.
1: Well, I mean, Michael's an underachiever, uh, never really lived up to his potential academically, you know, Yale, Harvard, it's just, you know, the pedigree was just okay. Um, uh, joking aside, um, Michael is someone who is unbelievably driven to be the best. And when he reached the level of, you know, he's got an MD, MBA from Yale. He was chief resident at Harvard at the Brigham. I mean, the guy is is a brilliant, brilliant dermatologist. Uh, and as you said, that's stable. And for some people, it is about, you know, doing what they love, making some money while doing it. And that's what drives them. Um, I'm not Michael, so I can only speculate, but I've, I've known him for 10 years and, and I'm going to take a shot at it. He's driven for the transformation, for the journey of making an indelible mark on something even bigger than all of dermatology. He wants to, like I want to, make a difference in healthcare. And we're starting off in in Derm and GI and opt, and Ortho, but the point of modernizing medicine is to do our namesake. It's to leave an indelible mark on healthcare that's made a difference. And, and I got to do that in education, and Blackboard, I f- firmly believe, made a huge mark on the educational technology landscape. And the opportunity is to do that again in an even bigger industry in healthcare. I mean, healthcare is a, a, you know, a fifth of this country's GDP. It is trillions of dollars. And we're only talking about the US. There's a whole world of people that suffer from the same illnesses that use the same treatments that need the same data to understand what works and what doesn't. Yeah. And so what, what got Michael to leave the comfort of a very successful dermatology practice and take a leap of faith with this crazy entrepreneur that walked into his office and convinced him to take the leap of faith, was the ability to actually make a bigger impact than what just one person could do. I mean, there are 800 of us at Modernizing Medicine, and we need more. Like, the the impact we're making is tremendous, but there's so much more work to do. And that's the feeling you can only get when you start a company that's going to do something as big as
0: what we're doing. So what ended up being the business model, Dan?
1: So the business model of ModMed is is the same traditional model I will always fall back on, bill and collect. We sell a monthly subscription to physicians for their practices, to manage their medical health records and their practice management, their pathology, their telemedicine. Um, It's it's a beautiful, simple model. We get paid each month. Each month, we have to re-earn the business of our entire base. I love that because it keeps us honest. It means I have to invest in innovation. It means I have to invest in customer delight. If I don't, my customers will leave. There are a lot of people who will try to tell you that you want to and encourage you to get into multi-year contracts, prepays, up fronts, because you're, quote unquote, locking people in. That's a terrible way to maintain customer delight and customer sentiment. Um, I, I, you know, my my happiness in the company kind of mirrors the corporate NPS score. Uh, if our customers are happy, I'm happy because they're happy and their patients are happy and everyone wins. If our corporate NPS goes down, uh, I'm unhappy because our customers are feeling pain and I need to understand what's causing that pain. Is it us? Is it the industry? Is it something that's changed in the regulatory environment? But we we keep the the vital signs of our customers always in mind. And we are very responsive to them, and it's that partnership we have with our customers, which is one of the, the key reasons for our success.
0: So, for example, for the especially for the people that are listening, how do you measure customer delight?
1: So there are there are a number of ways to do it. I'll give you the easy one, which is you, you bake something like NPS, uh, Net Promoter Score, into your product. And if you're doing surveys, you know, over email or some other form, you're you're only getting you know, a true subset sampling of those who opened the email, responded to the email and so on. If you build it into your application and you have to be careful not to oversample because you tend to upset people, but if you do it correctly, the application will actually tell you on a rolling basis who's happy and who's not. And if you do it in application, you know the customer, you know how long they've had the application, you know their role. Are they the doctor? Are they the medical assistant? How long have they been using the software? Um, which features of the software do they use? And so you start to develop more than just an NPS score, which you want and, and profile it, but you want to develop what we call a health score. And our health scores are vitals. You know, we look at um, new feature utilization. So when we roll out a feature from the cloud, we know which customers are using it and do they have higher NPS than those that don't. Uh, but the, the key is to bake it into your product, bake it into the workflow so that you're actually able to measure on a much broader case uh, what the customer delight is. I mean, you of course don't want to do it exclusively. You want to ask them also, you want to have conferences and phone calls and you've got to get out of the office and meet them. Uh, but, but having that heartbeat that vital sign monitor in the application is essential.
0: Got it, got it. So, so how much capital have you guys raised?
1: Oh boy, 300 ish million. Give or take a few pennies.
0: Wow, wow. And I see wonderful investors too and and obviously this time around you you came with your homework done because with Blackboard you learned a lot about raising money and and the fundraising process and all of that. So, so, what did you learn from that that you knew that you were going to apply here, especially when thinking about who you were going to marry with from an investor, you know, a relationship perspective?
1: Well, I, I think you nailed it, Alejandra. It's the who much more important than the money. Um, Blackboard raised capital from companies that don't even exist anymore, uh, you know, strategics that don't exist anymore, investment funds that don't exist anymore. And And you know their money was as green as the next ones, but their ability to help and clearly sustain didn't exist. You know we've raised capital at modernizing medicine from Warburg Pincus, uh, which which may be one of the largest funds in the world, but the the reason they have they have survived decades and decades is that they have some of the smartest institutional investors who are there to be helpful. And they are not operators. They don't try to run the company for us. Uh, they're great advisors. They help advise on MA, They help advise on capital, but but they are not in in our you know windscreen trying to direct us on how to build and scale and run the organization. So we we've, we've absolutely loved our relationship with Warburg. Um, we raised two hundred thirty one million dollars from them. Uh, I, w- I would raise more capital from them um, should we need to, and that's that's going to be the interesting thing is. You know, modernizing medicine is now at a place at which we are, you know, very much EBITDA positive and growing at a good rate. So we're now questioning do do you try to ratchet up? Like if you've got a a nearly 30% growth rate, uh, what more could you do? What more could you buy? How could you put and deploy capital that's going to yield a good return? And and that's the questions we're faced with today. But I would I would absolutely recommend that you you as an entrepreneur need to get to know the private equity partner, not the fund the people, the actual people, and not necessarily the deal team. If the deal team will be the team that's going to join your board, great. Make sure the deal team is the team that's going to join your board. Make sure you know the people, make sure you know what their goals are and how you align, not just with the fund, but the the individuals. Um, and, and just constantly be open and transparent with them on, on is there a misalignment? You know, it, the one thing that's made Blackboard sustainable and and as we grew it and then later on modernizing medicine sustainable was we never felt out of alignment with our investors. Like the the constant uh, cadence of resetting and realigning for what we want the business to do was clear. And if there was a misalignment with, say, a growth rate or a profitability metric, it was aired at the board level uh, and it was dealt with. And we came to a conclusion and then we left that board meeting in lockstep again on what we were going to do. And so that that constant realignment to make sure you're you're in it for the right reasons with your business partner, with your financial partner is essential.
0: So on the show, we've had a, a lot of people that that have raised money from from venture capital firms. And, and we've gone into, into that type of detail and, and perhaps interest and, and what drives them. So I guess in, in this case, you know, especially for the folks that are listening, what drives private equity firms to, to make an investment?
1: It's a tough question. I think there's no such thing as a, a single answer. Uh, some private equity funds, the traditional private equity funds, were driven by um, using leverage, uh, which is primarily driven from profit. So taking EBITDA, levering it up five, six, seven, ten times, and using that, those proceeds uh, to continue to roll the engine forward. And so the, the optimization there was around EBITDA and profitability and cash flow. And that's a playbook. That's not my playbook. That's not the growth playbook uh, where there's, you know, green fields and market opportunity and you got to get out there and build a business. But that is a playbook. That is not all of private equity. So Warburg's a great example. You know, we are, we are a growth company in a private equity portfolio. Uh, and there's absolutely no reason you, you can't have a portfolio where there's some fast growers. There's some cash cows that you're you're leveraging the EBITDA off of, but the traditional playbook is one where, and and I would caution you know make sure you know your partner. Um, are they one that's going to really look for a multiple of EBITDA on an exit, or are they growth oriented and willing to work with you? It's it's a higher beta, right? It's a higher risk opportunity for you to say I'm going to grow this company at you know twenty even thirty percent growth, where the multiples on growth can be many times. Uh, That of of an EBITDA, well, your your EBITDA multiples can be higher uh, from a dollar amount, uh, but your revenue growth and your revenue numbers are typically much higher than your EBITDA number. So, you know, an example today, and obviously by the time this airs, none of it will be true, but public companies are able to command, you know, even 10x revenue multiples uh, in the spaces that we look at. Um, the, the same companies are maybe commanding 18 to 22 times EBITDA multiples, and you just need to decide on, on which of those sides of the equation you want to be. Um, and you can mix and match to some degree. Um, you know, most investors are going to want to optimize for one or the other. You know, we, Modernizing Medicine, are example of, of doing both simultaneously, focused more on growth, less on EBITDA, but maintaining an EBITDA um, margin. And I think that that's
0: a healthy way to build a company. Got it. Got it. Really, really interesting. So, so one of the questions that I always ask the guests that we have on the show is, I mean, knowing what you know now, I mean, you've you've second hypergrowth company, incredible lessons learned. Obviously, many many mistakes along the way too that have made you really, you know, who you are today. Uh, I would say the um, the question here is. What would you tell your younger self if you had the opportunity to go back in time and give yourself one piece of business advice before launching a business?
1: So I would tell the younger version, first of all, I would congratulate myself on being humble enough to know I needed other people. Then I would slap myself in the face and say you need to be more humble. <laughs> um, right. but yeah, you, you have to stay humble and, and grounded. Um the I don't want to say any entrepreneur. I, I was chasing an exit as a 21-year-old. I wanted to go public. I wanted to be wealthy. Like I was absolutely doing it for the wrong reasons. Now, my heart was in it for the right reason. I wanted to fix education. It was a noble cause. But anyone who says that they're not chasing an exit, um, I, I sort of am suspect a little of because you know, it's it's part of life. Life certainly becomes easier once you've had a big exit. It becomes easier to start more companies. It becomes easier to to live your life and, and be philanthropic and do all the things that I think should make most people happy. Um, I would slap myself around and say, stop chasing the exit. That if, if you do well and you do good, you'll do well by doing good. It, it's going to come together nicely for you and to... to yeah, you know, I, I don't know if it would have resulted in anything done differently at Blackboard. We would have still chased it. We would have raised hyper capital. We would have gone public. But I, I was being driven for the the wrong reasons. And in hindsight, of course, it's easier to say in hindsight um that I would love to tell myself to chase it for the right reasons, to do it for for the for the noble good, to fix something as important as education, to make a mark in a way that matters uh, in an industry that matters. and And all of my companies have had that. So clearly, somewhere in, in Dan's subconscious is a need to do a social good. Um, and I like that. I, I like the fact that I get up every day today at Modernizing Medicine and I'm helping fix healthcare. Um, that, that feels good. I'm surrounded by other people that also you know have heard the calling. Like the, the mission here is not, hey, let's make a lot of money by selling something to doctors. You know The mission here is let's make an impact on healthcare by understanding what works and what doesn't so that they can have better outcomes. And if doctors have better outcomes, they, they do better for their patients. They do better for their business and they do well for themselves.
0: Got it, got it. So for the folks that are listening, Dan, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi?
1: Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm on Twitter, not super active. LinkedIn also, uh, you know, I'm at Dan Kane on Twitter. I'm slash Dan Kane B-A-N-C-A-N-E on LinkedIn. Um, I'm not one of those people that declines everything. I'm almost quite the opposite. Uh, ha- happy to, to accept uh, people who want to connect and and chat. Um, I I can't meet with everyone who is interested in meeting and getting advice, but I certainly am always trying to mentor, give words of advice where I can, uh, and I genuinely want to see other entrepreneurs succeed. So if you're listening to this, I'm wishing you the absolute best of luck. It is not a zero-sum game. Uh, You know, your success does not come at at my detriment and vice versa. Uh, There's plenty of opportunity out there for all of us.
0: I love it. I love it. Well, Dan, thank you so much for being on The Dealmaker Show today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Alejandro.